0: Context is a good thing. In Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, Conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households. Captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Yambris opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all just as janus and jambres folly was also now you followed my teaching conduct purpose faith patience love perseverance persecutions and suffering such as happened to me at antioch at iconium at lystra what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood, Timothy. You've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom That leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word be ready in season out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths but you be sober in all things endure hardship do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry Almost the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have written by him. Certainly the last epistle he wrote is 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the last chapter, and we just finished the first paragraph of 2 Timothy 4. One of our favorite verses to tell us what we're about is 2 Timothy 3.16. It's fortunate that that's the number, 3.16. Those are important address numbers for us, with John 3.16 being our you know, most famous memory verse. But 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. A good companion for that is 2 Peter 3.16. Do you know that one? That's the one where Peter says that what Paul writes is Scripture. Paul is talking about the Old Testament when he says all Scripture is God-breathed. Then Peter says these confused people distort Paul's words as they do the, the rest of the Scriptures. And so Peter equates Paul with his writing with the Scriptures of the Old Testament in authority. And 2 Peter 3.16 I'm sure there are other, other famous 316s that are out there, but uh, those are a couple of really helpful ones on what we're doing. We're studying God's word. And the ministry philosophy at Preston City Bible Church, listen, is not to make the word relevant to us. It's really not. Because we're not God. And what we want to become, listen, is relative, relevant, sorry, not relative, but relevant to him. And we know that God's word, superfood, all scripture being God-breathed, the super spiritual food for us of God's word, makes that transformation in us so that we become more and more relevant to him. And the transformation that we're looking for will take place, I believe, with all my heart as we pay attention to what God has said. We're careful to observe how he said it. We are opening the word to Isaiah chapter 33 tonight for a purpose and the purpose is not to become super sharp on 7th century B.C. prophets. And the purpose is not to become super sharp on the poetry uh, and poetic structure of 2nd, 2nd century, or 7th century prophets. Although we'll see some of that. I think that the key to understanding these poems, which are fairly opaque as you just read through in English, the key to understanding them is to unlock their structure. Which we try to do. And then once you understand where the skeleton is, you see how the, how the, the, the organs and the, and the muscles fit on the bones. That's kind of how we, we approach it. But the purpose is not to know just what Isaiah 33 says. Our purpose, and we are going to try to juice chapter 33, verses 1 through 12 tonight. Our purpose is to know God. It's to behold him. It's to know Him as He is. It's to say things that we are absolutely certain are true of Him and to say them tonight as we're together and say them tomorrow as we talk to Him and to know Him more because we spent this time. That's our objective. And in the, in the process, we'll be reproved, rebuked, corrected, instructed in righteousness. I always give you a moment for silent prayer. We just had a big prayer meeting. Let's uh, recap as you need to the beautiful drill of self-assessment is presented clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with these words if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged in the tradition in, in in the church history the the idea of the believers confessing their sins has had a prominent place Maybe you understand something of the Roman system, the way they say you do it, go to the priest because that is to go to the church and the church dispenses the grace. So of course the priest has to hear your sins as some sort of mediatorial work between you and God. That's one approach. Nothing in the Bible says you confess to the priest. Uh, There is, confess your sins one to another. And I believe when James says that, he's talking about uh, when we are wrong toward one another. But... Another approach was to, in the liturgy and the Reformation, to say, we are sinners. I'm a sinner. But First John chapter 1 does not say, to say that you're a sinner. I mean, that's, a, that's the assumption. It's to say what you did, to name the case. And it doesn't say, wait to name it to God until you're in agony about it. Lord, I just don't feel bad about this, but I'll go ahead and wait until I feel bad, and then I'll confess it. It's not what it says. If we confess our sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Beloved, that is a promise. And I believe it. Do you believe it? So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Father, tonight we've assembled because we know it's foolish for us to starve spiritually. Sometimes we don't feel that way, but we know it's true. And thank you for the wisdom you've given us to know that. The wisdom you've given us to act on that understanding. We open our hearts tonight, Father, so that you would feed us your word and the power of your spirit, and we would know you better having spent the time. God, we ask that you would exalt yourself in our hearts. We would come to know your Son better through this effort, that your spirit would be more comfortable walking or working through us as we walk in his power. Strengthen us for that task tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in chapter 33 of Isaiah, titled this message, Wrath and Rest, and it's a really neat little interchange, little message that is not uh, super obvious, and it's Structure, so it's hard to understand. I'll just read verses one through twelve briefly out of the New American Standard. Isaiah writes, "Woe to you, O destroyer, while you're not destroyed, and he who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. As soon as you finish destroying, you'll be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you." I got no problem so far. Very simple, very you know, very straightforward. What goes around Assyria will come around and Egypt and the wicked in Judah, the destroyers that are destructive of other Israelites. But then the, the tone changes. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you by their strength every morning or be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in the time of distress at the sound of the tumult people's, uh, people's flee, at the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers as locusts rushing about men rush about on it. Um, that's, uh, that's a challenging little section there. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He's filled Zion with justice and righteousness. He will be the stability of your times. Now, this part speaks to you as you read on the surface. I recommend reading Isaiah for surface things that jump out because there are devotional moments that are the, they're the, the sweet notes in the, in the prophecies of deliverance. He'll be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Behold there are brave men cry in the streets. That's not good. <laughs> now it's sad again. Brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler cease. He's broken the covenant. He's despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon's like a desert plain, Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. Now it will arise, says the Lord. Now it will be exalted. Now will be lifted up. That's good. You've conceived chaff. You give birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. Well, that's bad. That's how Isaiah 33 reads. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. Selah. Amen. That's Isaiah chapter 33, verses 1 through 12. And my task is not to juice that to get you some doctrine understand my task is to understand what's being said so we understand the doctrine that isaiah is presenting and in understanding it we're going to rejoice that we are on the right side of history because if you're on the wrong side of history god is going to get glory through his wrath and that's a really important concept to get the wrath of God brings glory to him because he appro- approaches wickedness and foolishness righteously. If he was a wicked judge, he could wink at sin and disregard. But he's not a wicked judge. He's righteous. He's holy. And he is going to render judgment and righteousness. Where are you going? You're with me. Okay. All right, God is going to have his way, and it's going to bring glory to him. We said there are six woes in Isaiah 28 through 33, and this one is an overlap. This last woe that he calls in chapter 33, woe to the destroyer, is brief. And it opens a new section, which is going to take us from chapter 33 through 35, that's of one piece, as I'll show you in a moment. And that is one reason it's such a stumper. We have, woe to the drunkards, and woe to Ariel, and woe to the divisors of plans, and woe to rebellious children, woe to those who go down to Egypt, and woe to the destroyer. is kind of the capstone. And it's almost like, it, it, it reads a lot like the telescoping judgments in Revelation, that we go from trumpet to a bunch of woes to more trumpets to, to vials and these things and or to bowls. And, um, and so he's going to launch on kind of a finale of this section of the Bible uh, that's going to conclude in chapter 35, verse 10. And what, what we should do, we really, really should do is, is do the whole scroll in one sitting and say, wow, and then go home and then start over in chapter 40 next time. But we're not. We're gonna do this, we're gonna stretch this out until we cover every verse of Isaiah. And today we'll do 12 verses out of Isaiah 33. All right, Alec Motyer is the gift that keeps on giving on how to read Isaiah, because he correctly identifies the structure of the way Isaiah presents his material. It's poetry, you can't teach poetry like you teach an epistle, because that would be to abuse it, do you know why? Because you'll understand things that the author's not saying. And if you read an epistle like it's poetry, well, that's going to be bad too. And, and that's what's wrong with a lot of the interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11. The, the, the primeval history, the, the protology, the first stuff that the Bible teaches about history and defines our worldview, our cosmology. If you take the narrative historical material that God tells us is what happened when he made everything, if you take that as poetry, which is often done, and say, so, oh, it's a building project, it's, a, it's arranged you know, structurally in, in poetic terms, then it gives you uh, enough wiggle room to miss the worldview that God establishes in Genesis chapters 1-11. through 11. And it, a lot of Christians are double-minded. They live in a world where they believe that God made everything through a gradual process of evolution. They believe in original sin and Adam, but they don't believe that Adam was actually created, as God said, as the first man. And they and they well they just kind of blur their eyes. They oh it's poetry, and that's a, that's that's a genre override. That's an abuse of the text, and it's a misinterpretation because bad hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is that discipline that Americans are not willing to do. I won't learn how to interpret the Bible, but this is the way you do Hebrew poetry. You figure out its structure based on the the the, the components, the elements in there, and and you've got to kind of you have to kind of. To do this right, you have to say, I think this is what's going on. It's almost like the scientific method. You make a, 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 an educated guess, and then you trace it out and see if this is it, and you usually get pretty close with the first try, and then you trim it up. And this is actually, I think, Matry, Matry is right on about how Isaiah 33 through 35 works. Notice that the A's are, um, are of the same piece, The salvation of Zion in verse 1 through 6 of 33. The first universal proclamation um, in chapters 13 through 24 of Isaiah 33. The pilgrimage of the redeemed to Zion in 35, 1 through 10. But then in Isaiah 33, 7 through 12, you have the judgment of the peoples. That's not of the same nature as the salvation of Zion. This is is rest, salvation of Zion. This one's wrath, the judgment of the peoples. It ends with burning to lime. And it's all God's glory. It's all uh, good, but it's not good for the people that are being burned to lime. The sec- so, so Meyer points out these universal proclamations. Chapters uh, 13, 33, verses uh, 13 through 24, we'll cover next time. The the hero, everyone, listen, listen up. Chapter uh, 33, verse 13 says, We're going to present Zion and the king and the people of the king and what the king is going to be like. And it's wonderful and it's Christological. And then in chapter 34, the entirety, you have the second universal proclamation and it's introduced with come near. These are structural markers here, everybody, and then come near to the listener. And then this final overthrow presentation. So I'm just saying we have a lot of fun ahead of us as we work through the rest of Isaiah uh, chapters 33 through 35. So, um, so this is the kind of stuff you have to do, and it takes a lot of time and energy. And I'm thankful for those on whose shoulders we can stand that have done this kind of work. And I think the conservatives out there will tell you Motyer is the best guy on Isaiah. Before Motyer, they said Young, his three-volume commentary on Isaiah, because at least he believed that Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. And so that was really good, and we like people that say things like that and believe in one author named Isaiah. And so you know that, that kind of cancels almost all Old Testament scholarship on the book of Isaiah. Um, and I like um, Young's commentary. He is, I believe, evangelical, and, um, but I think that Mottier's got a lot more insight into the structure, which is what I'm after when I'm asking poetry questions for exegesis. All right. In the section we're in tonight, 33, 1 through 12, and I know this is academic, I'm sorry. I've got some points at the end. You're going to love them. But first, um, the, the, the structure is really cool, and it looks like this when Mattyar wrote it. And when I read it in Mattyar's book, I see this, and I think, I don't want to do that, and I don't like how that looks. So I redid it, and it looks like that, and that is really tight. Verse 1, the destroyer be destroyed. Verse 2 is an appeal for God's grace and salvation. One verse, one verse. Wrath and, wrath and salvation. Wrath and salvation. This is prophets of doom and deliverance. Okay? That's the pattern that gets established. Verses 3 and 4, the peoples become the Lord's plunder. That's wrath. But then the new Zion is going to be saved. And the salvation of Zion, the reestablishment of Zion, 5 and 6, two verses, two verses. That's the structure. You see, it, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. And I just don't see it. I don't care how many times I read it in English. Um, I didn't see it till I read it in, uh, in Hebrew, and then read what Mottier said about it because this is hard. Verses seven through nine, mourning over treachery, and that's wrath—that's the, the, the destruction language. But then in chapter ten, verse, uh, verses—I'm sorry—verses ten through twelve, you have God's decision and action, which will be the complete the glorification of God through His wrath. So verses ten through twelve close this little section down, and it shows you this idea. When you put these thoughts together of wrath, bringing God's glory on wickedness, and, and, and salvation, bringing God's, God's glory through his willing participants, you have um, this combination that no matter what, God is going to be glorified. And let's pause on the little academic structural talk and say, this is the deal. God's going to be glorified in, in and through you. It may be despite your choices. It's true for all of us. When justice renders the righteous verdict on wickedness, God is glorified. You don't want to bring God glory that way. You don't want to be cannon fodder. But it will bring God glory to say wickedness is wicked. But the Bible is full of the constant appeal beginning in Genesis 3. That God wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to walk with him. And he has things for you that you don't know about, but you need to trust him every step of the way. And as you trust him, that brings this participating glory that you get to be part of his work, not a a proverb for everyone to look at and say, well, don't do that. Don't call the prophet of God, you bald head, if you're a teenager. Why? Because there are she-bears that you don't know about waiting in the woods to tear you to pieces and it brings God glory because that's wickedness and it's it's dishonoring to God and to God's people and it's maybe that seems like it's over the top but you haven't dealt with teenagers if you feel that way very much I I don't mock my teenagers I mean the other people's teenagers okay let's go through in verse 31 33 verse 1 this is the longest verse, and it's pretty neat the way it's structured. You can see red, blue, red, blue. That's kind of the, the, the flow of it. Woe to the one who destroys or to the destroyer. So dead is the word for destroyer, and it's a participle. But you were not destroyed. So what this means is that you hurt, but no one got you. No one put you in check. Oh, God's got you. And this is a wonderful principle for everyone. You can spend the whole night on this verse. If you think you're getting away with some sort of oppression, you're not. That's wonderful for the oppressed to know. It's also very important for those who might choose to oppress to think about. Because just because you haven't been bitten yet when you're a biter, don't worry, it's coming. The treacherous, different word, and they were not treacherous with him. What what's what we're doing with Isaiah's poetry, which doesn't come out in English, is Shoded Shadud. Shod Shadud, same word, different inflection, where he says the destroyer not destroyed. And so that comes out in English. The treacherous, they were not treacherous with him. This is the word um Bagad. And it's Boged and Bagdo, Bagdu. Sorry. And so it's the same word that he's doubling, and he does it twice. He uses Shaddad four times and Bagad four times, and one of them means to destroy, another means to be treacherous. And so that's Isaiah's poetry. That's what he's doing in his in his rhyming and thought and in sound. When you finish destroying, you'll be destroyed. You think you're going to rest after the fight and after you've after you've done your biting as the, the, the big bad dog. That wouldn't bit someone? Nope. As soon as you think it's over, it's coming for you. When you finish dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. And so hopefully you can see this is about what you read in your English Bible in the order that it comes in English. But it's pretty neat anyway that this is the kind of stuff that poetry in the Bible does. Now, where will you find poetry in the Bible? Think about that with me. Where do you find it? Well, the Psalms, Pastor Dave, 150 of them. Where else? Most of the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, uh, Lamentations of Jeremiah, most of the prophetic material by what the, the, with named by the prophets is poetry. There's no greater Psalm in the Bible, some might say, than Habakkuk chapter 3. And Habakkuk doesn't read the entirety like a poem, but it kind of does, but especially chapter 3. Where else? Have you ever read the book of Exodus? The entirety of chapter 15 is a psalm of praise. The horse and his rider have been thrown into the sea, glorifying God for this very thing, that God's wrath came, the hammer fell. Righteousness was served by God's wrathful justice. And we praise God for it, because by doing that to Pharaoh and his chariots, he saved us. And that's salvation and deliverance through the wrath of God. Um, What about uh, Judges? Any poems in Judges? Yeah, you have the Song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. Guess what? Same rules apply. It works the same way. There's a lot of the Bible that is this. And what happened to me when I first encountered this study in seminary at probably the age uh, 26 or 27, when I first learned that this is how it is, I was blown away. Because so much of my Bible is Old Testament. So much of this thing is in Hebrew. And when you say the entire book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and chunks of otherwise narrative things like Judges and Exodus, that these are poetry and you have to read them with an eye to structure, I was, I was blown away. And what before seemed very impossible to understand, all of a sudden, okay, I can get this. God is telling us, listen, He's telling us to join Him at the art gallery. Now, I don't think of a great day if i get a free day to go to the art gallery that's not my first thing i might do unless it's one of those ones where you see something that's world famous because i'm a i'm not an art knowledge person i like aesthetics i like the philosophy discussions on aesthetics understand but i'm not trained in it so um, i'd much rather go hear the art at the symphony than go see the visual stuff especially after you know uh, after the impressionists are done i'm pretty much done (laughs) But as the culture has declined, as the West declined. But um, but what I'm saying is God is telling you that it matters how I say it because that's how you get to understand what it means and why you do it. And so I, I'm trying to make this appeal with you from time to time. It, it, it takes a little bit of time to read Isaiah as he is, as he is intended, but it's worth it. And if I'm careful with structure, you know what doesn't happen? My little pet good ideas don't, infiltrate into what God is saying well this really spoke to me in English yeah well they translate it that way and that one is easily applicable but can you fit what he's saying in verse 8 into the rest of the structure all right in verse 2 we have an appeal for grace and for salvation so we go from the wrath that is coming for the destroyer in verse 1 to God's grace in appeal and so you have the request of the Lord he says Yahweh he says "O Lord Uh, chanan, be gracious. The word for grace in Hebrew is chen, and the verb to be gracious is chanan, and that is not chesed. That's a different word, and it has a different connotation. The word for grace in Hebrew is chen, C-H-E-N, if you're going to try to transliterate that into English. Might as well just learn Hebrew. It's this letter, chet, uh, chanan, okay? Yahweh, be gracious to us, For you, Laka. for you, we have waited. Okay, these are interesting and related ideas. We're asking you to be gracious to us. For you, we have waited. We are waiting. Now notice, you're going to have to do something if you want us to have something good, because you're the source. We know our job is to wait for you to provide. And so it's really going after God for personal relationship. Be our strength every morning. Be our arm or our strength. Libokrim, morning, in the morning. They, it has to be every morning because in English it does say according to morning, so it means every morning, even our salvation in time specific time of Sarah of distress what seems when i first read this to not really fit any sort of structure in verse 2 actually does have a structure in the night when things are bad you can't see and there may be an impending attack and you don't know when it's coming it's coming at dawn right before daylight And if you get through the night and you get through that gray period, when the sun finally rises, you can see, uh, and you lived, you're delivered. And I think that this waiting language really helps us with the structure. On the outside, the writer Isaiah is saying, be gracious to us. The grace that God offers is parallel an idea to our salvation in time of distress. But on the inside, for you, we've waited. You be our strength every morning. What do you get if I'm right? If I'm right, if that's the structure Isaiah implies, he intends that that's the rhyme, is that we have a role even in hard times when we're waiting, when we're under in duress, And he says, in time of distress, in the outside. And God is the strength, He alone. And I think that is the intention of the rhyme that Isaiah writes. And it is. Uh, something to check yourself on. Now notice the contrast. Verse one is the destroyer is going to get destroyed. Verse two, we're waiting for you, oh God. We're not the destroyer. We the remnant in Israel, Isaiah I- including himself, we want you to be our strength. We want you to be our deliverance. Our only appeal is that we're waiting on you. Of course, I love that we wait, you be our strength, you provide in a place that Very clearly references grace that God would exercise grace, which it always to me makes me ask: in a place mentioning grace, we're talking about helplessness. Are we talking about God doing something and we receiving it? And in this case, that's absolutely what Isaiah is saying here. So this is the attitude of the righteous, and this will work in your devotion. This is a great way to pray to God. He alone. Can provide our strength. He alone is our attention. If the word waited is translated correctly, and it is, then this means that Jesus, or the Lord, Yahweh, who is the Father, Son, and Spirit, He is our anticipation. He's the one you're looking for. You're not looking for the fun thing that's on the calendar that's coming tomorrow. Oh, good, He can't wait. I'll never forget. Uh, I think it was second grade. We had a sleepover party for my birthday. We'd never done anything like that before. That I recall, I'd been had been to friends' house, had been over to my house, but never had multiple participants. My dad uh, mowed a baseball diamond into the freshly mown grass. I mean, he dropped down another couple inches, and we uh, and we went and played baseball in the backyard. And my dad put up the tent. We did not do this, the tent came out. I knew all this was taking place and I was very excited about this event. You can imagine, just uh, we've all had fun things we thought were coming. Can you imagine that as the days were ticking by closer and closer to this, that anything else was in my mind. Dad was like, yeah, we're gonna go cut the grass tomorrow, get ready for the party. I almost couldn't stand it, the anticipation, the excitement about what was gonna happen, that this was actually gonna take place. And for the most part, we didn't get in trouble when it happened. But we get this way with little things in life. And as I look back on that, it's been a couple years since I was in second grade. And um, slept in a lot of tents. Been around a lot of guys and sleepover scenarios in a tent. Um, Slept in a Coleman tent on an airfield in Iraq for a while. Never in a bus down by the, in the van by the river, but I've, you know, been uh, in a lot of interesting situations. And um, the more we focus our attention and anticipation on the Lord, on what He can provide and what He's doing, the more we're adjusted to reality. Because the little things that we're looking forward to never satisfy. By the way, that's why little kids, after they have their big event, they're looking for the next event before we even clean up the trash from the last event. What's, what's the next, what's the next thing? Why? We didn't satisfy the little Christmas morning uh, drill. All right. So anticipation is a big part of the Christian life. And this verse speaks to that with the remnant. Now this is a summary attitude of the righteous in Israel and notice how applicable it is. Do you have a moment in your life here and there where you need God to be your strength? The more you walk with him, the more he's going to bring you to those places and say, Are you trusting me? Are you waiting on me? Verse 2 really will preach. But now we're back to the peoples under God's wrath in verse 3. Verses 3 through 4, remember, switches back to the blue, back to the wrath of God. At the sound of the tumult, that's a word for battlefield noise. Peoples flee, the people's, the word for. Uh, nation groups that is not goyim. That's this word here. The peoples will translate amim. At the raising up of yourself, the nations disperse. All right, is everybody clear that peoples fleeing and nations dispersing is the same idea? See see how that's the same and it rhymes? Well, look at the other part that isn't that rhyme. The sound of the battlefield, the raising up of yourself. The noise that makes people afraid, the ground is vibrating because here come the tanks. And we don't see the tanks, but we hear their diesel engines. And we feel the ground start to shake. That battlefield tumult is not tanks, it's God. It's Yahweh coming in his wrath. Now he comes in the form, if you will, he brings the wrath of, 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 uh, of his discipline on national northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah through the Assyrians. But it's God's wrath nevertheless. And so he's described as the cause of this, of this coming uh, and, and you can just feel the, the tension you would have if the army is coming t- toward you and you you know, you're a big enough force that you can feel their footsteps in the ground. And it is gathered up, Asaf, where my middle name, Joseph, comes from, Asaf, to gather, to gather, to add. It is gathered up, what is? Your spoil, your shalal, as gathering Asaf of the chassil, now, this is not kassil. That's a fool. In Proverbs, this is chassil. A chasil is um, the, the most recent lexicon uh, for that everybody uses for record with the better, newer research, more archaeology, more uh, intertextuality. Um, the, they don't think this means a caterpillar. Although I like, that, that I like the word caterpillar. That's a cool word, but that's probably not what this noun means. It probably means a larval stage of a locust where he's eating a lot to so he can become the next phase and that see locust is the gift that keeps on giving through multiple phases and this is the one that he's eating so that's why they've translated caterpillar i mean a caterpillar is a larval phase of something that's eating your plants but it's probably a locust is the issue the gathering of the larval locust how i've called it so your spoil is going to be completely everything you've got that's valuable is going to be gobbled up that's what it means Like the rushing of locusts, these are the ones that aren't larval anymore. They're big, and now they eat more, and they're swarming. Like the rushing of locusts is the one rushing upon it. So the military that's going to come and consume all your material wealth is going to be like a locust horde. That's what it says in verse 4. And um, again, Isaiah is hitting us with the same word, asaf, asaf. And then this word um, rushing, let's see, which one is that? Um, It's this word uh, shachach, shachach to rush upon. And so it's again, it's, it's rhyming in thought. He's using the same words multiple times. These are poetic devices that are interesting and intelligent and ancient and um, detailed. And that's right there in the Bible. This is, let's get to know our Bible. But now we switch gears again. We've had the nature of the wrath that God brings through military conquest, that'll bring a swarming that that takes all your stuff And now, uh, back to the ultimate destiny of the material universe, which is the new heavens and new earth with the new Jerusalem, ultimately the new Jerusalem with, um, he doesn't call it the new Jerusalem here, he calls it Zion, but the the destiny of planet earth is not the millennial kingdom of Christ uh, on this present terrain the way it is here, minus the curse. It's the new heavens and new earth. And still Israel in the land uh, ruling over the nations with Jesus as the king over all, um, the new Zion. Exalted. Exalted, a rare word for exaltation. Sagog, it's a, a Sargav, sorry, Sagav. Exalted is the Lord, for he dwells on high. Where is he? He's up above. He's on high. Where does Satan want to do? He wants to set his throne above the stars of heaven and the recesses of the north. It's it's that game you play to see who gets to bat first. I'm gonna be in charge. No, I'm gonna be in charge. And nobody gets to take over because God's sovereign. It's his essence, it's his nature. And the creature needs to figure that out. This is the first of all things to learn, right? God is God. If you really wanna have good sound theology, or I mean a relationship in your life to reality, you need to recognize rule number one, the first principle is God is God. And what's the second principle? I am not. This is really helpful because we're answering the big questions. Who is God and who is man? And what has God said he's going to do with me? And these kinds of things. Exalted is Yahweh for he dwells on high. He's filled Zion with justice and righteousness he has filled Zion with justice and righteousness so God is glorified and he's bringing that glory to Zion and exalting Zion because his by apparently his presence and so this is a new picture from the wrath God brings on his enemies to the glory he's going to bring in his the apple of his eye in Zion and when you hear Zion in the day in which we live that gives us some pause doesn't it Oh, that's a very interesting topic today because Zion means Jerusalem. It's always meant Jerusalem. It's a figure of speech referencing a a piece of terrain in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the land of God's promise, the land of Canaan that was never really occupied uh, where they are by the Philistines. But today, uh, for some reason, because we followed the godless Romans, Um, into calling them Palestinians or Palestine. It's Palestine. It's not. It's the Holy Land. It's the land of Israel. And he's talking about Zion here. I like to bring that out in the time which we live because this is the present. Today is the present reading Isaiah about something was written 2,700 years ago. So far, so good. I mean, today is today. And Isaiah wrote this 2,700 years ago about what's going to happen in the future and forevermore. There's coming a time, I don't know when, when Jesus is going to set up his kingdom in Zion and it's never going to leave and that's how it's going to be, and that's great news. And it's not there today, but it's going to be there. In verse 6, the same thought continues, he will be faithfulness or stability for your time, of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. All right, let's bring out this word faithfulness, which I've said, I've kind of fudged. I just said it could be faithfulness or stability. I want you to get a sense of what this word means. This is amunath. Amunath because it's a, in construct state and so it goes to this word here. Uh, stability of your times. But this word Amuna, it's one of our favorite Hebrew words. Do you know that word A-M-U-N-A-H? Amunah? Um, it comes from the verb or it's related to the verb aman. A-M-A-N. And this is your stock theological word, often a technical term Translated faith, Amon. The concept of being Amon or Amon as a verb is really complicated. Okay, it's not that complicated. If you are Amon, you're God, Nifal If you Amon God, then you're causing him or recognizing that he is Faithful. Being this thing is faithfulness. This is what we get confused. We think that our faith is our faithfulness, that I'm really committing myself to God, or I'm really going to do it, or really going to perform, really going to work for him. That's not what we do toward God. What God does is he's faithful, he's stable. That's Amon. What we do is always in the hip fill stem, it's the causative stem, we cause him to be faithful. Well, you're not causing God to be faithful. That's the complicated part. Can you grasp that, that you're causing God to be faithful? That's the grammar, but it's not true. God is faithful, so if you're causing him to be, where's the cause happening? You're recognizing his faithfulness. You're you're changing. He's not changing. So when when we say causative stem, it's grammar. Okay, I'm messing this up. God is faithful. We exercise faith in the faithful one. That's, That's what I'm saying. It isn't our faithfulness toward God. Oh, God, I'm really committing this time. I'm really going to do it. That's not faith. That's being passed off as faith in some quarters of, uh, of various Reformed traditions. But that's not what the word faith means. That's not what the words for faith in Hebrew mean. It means that God is faithful in recognizing his faithfulness. He's the rock and we are sitting on him. What happens if you trust in God? You become stable. He stabilizes you, and you can be faithful, but that's a secondary matter to God being the stable one. So he will be faithfulness or stability for your times. This idea is the base meaning in the Old Testament for faith, the one who is faithful, stable. What we do is trust him because he's the stable one. I hope you can understand. This is so very helpful to me in the debate over whether faith is a work. Everybody can agree that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Everyone's got that, right? Okay, so, and it is not a work for you to trust in Christ. No matter how much the reformed people want to tell you it's a work that God has to do through you, it actually, he he has to make you believe or give you faith or something. Faith is not a work because it's not by grace. I bet it's by grace through faith, not of works. Faith cannot be a work. And this is what I'm trying to say. The whole merit of the worker and the stable and the faithful one, that's God. What you and I bring as sinners is our faith in him, our recognition of his faithfulness. God, you can save me. Otherwise, there is no salvation. I have nothing to offer but need, and I trust you as the one offering the salvation, for example, through his son. He will be faithfulness of your times or stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is his treasure. This is about Yahweh from verse 5, but the fear of Yahweh, he treasures. Did you know God treasures it if you fear him? Better figure out what that means because he does. He treasures the fear of the Lord. This is put in the poetic arrangement as I see it because wealth and treasure are the same idea. A wealth of salvation, fear of the Lord is his treasure. And in the middle, salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, well, wisdom and knowledge are always right there with the fear of the Lord all through the Proverbs. These are wisdom topics. So the the wealth of salvation, you could possibly put salvation up here with wealth, but a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. The middle is usually the focus when you do this little reverse order thing. Isaiah did that. He put this like this on purpose so that you would say, hmm, look what's in the middle. The things we get from God and what we do with him. The things we get from God, his, his cut toward us salvation wisdom and knowledge it all comes from him and what we bring that he treasures that we fear him now what does it mean to fear the lord we'll spend the night working through proverbs where it talks about this look it up in all the lexicons look up the word fear Yahweh, and all the different uses of that word and then let's work on it and here's what i came up with it's not just respect it's not enough to say respect But you're not supposed to be in a sinful terror of God either, crouching as some sort of kicked dog in the corner that, always going to get me. You don't think of God as like the bad guy in the horror movie, that kind of fear. Here's what I think. I think the capacity that you and I have to properly respect and honor and be in awe of God is of one piece. That's a, a capacity he's given us to fear him. And when we apply it to anything else, like I'm afraid of what the government's going to do. I'm afraid of what's going to happen with the girl. I'm afraid of this thing or that horrible, fearful thing, including the horror stuff. The bad guy's going to get me. That fear is always illicit and forbidden in the Bible. Because the capacity to have awe is supposed to be completely reserved for God. It's one of the key ways we worship him. So instead of saying, well, you've got two kinds of fear, I don't think of it that way. I think you have one capacity. Exercise toward God is the right thing. Exercise toward anything else is sinful and forbidden throughout the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments. Jesus, when he rebukes the disciples, for example, will say, don't be afraid. Why did you doubt? He'll see, always say, stop being afraid or don't be afraid. And then he'll chastise them for doubting him. So in other words, if you have the right object of your faith, then faith functions properly. If you have the right object of your fear, then it functions properly. It's what it's made for. And just think about this. I almost want, I almost want to think of it. If you go into like one of those cages, one of these shark encounter things, these adventure people with uh, too much time on their hands, but they don't know how valuable the time is. I don't know. But they're going to go in the shark tank and swim with the great whites, right? Like nothing bad could happen here. Okay, so... <sighs> just the thought of that that thing that's out there that could get me i don't think god's like that but the power the reason people do this is for the thrill for the for the for the jolt they get of the adrenaline of the moment of this primal moment that i could just very close to death you are swimming next to an infinitely large being with infinite capacity to do anything he wants Just the the doctrine of God's omnipotence should give us the fear of the Lord. Just that alone. Now, take omnipotence and combine it with righteousness and justice, the character attributes of God, and then look at your sin and weakness and limitations. Not only are we horribly flawed, but we're we're little bitty, puny, cruddy people, too, compared to infinite righteousness and omnipotence. If you understand, if you're starting to get the sense that there's some sweaty palms that start to happen. You start to think about who we're actually dealing with. That's the fear of the Lord. Do not fear him who can destroy just the body, but fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell. This is the fear of the Lord. All right, behold. Now, this is, this is where we turn the corner to the morning section back to judgment in verses seven through nine, three verses. And you're, you're gonna accelerate a little bit here. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. This is a one-time word. They don't know they're really struggling with what to do with this word. And um, the best probably comparison is to say heroes based on the word Ariel. But their heroes, their mighty men, cry in the streets. The messengers of peace weep bitterly. What's the, what's the rhyme, Pastor Dave? Well, obviously crying and weeping are the same thought. With me? If they're out there crying in the streets, that's weeping bitterly. This is, you know, after the 2016 election, some of the primal crying in the streets and stuff, right? Now, I love that image. So the heroes are the men of war. That would be the hawks. The message of peace would be the doves, Regardless of who it is, that might be the contrast: messengers of peace versus the ministers of war. But the point is um, that uh, we're turning the corner back from God's our salvation, and we're fearing him to those under his wrath are uh, experiencing something very different because of the wrath of God. They're desolate. Now this describes the land. We just heard Zion's going to be filled with righteousness and justice someday. Now we're going to talk about how it's full of wickedness. Or a desolation. The highways are desolate. He has ceased, he who passes on the way. And then the verse that really tripped me up reading in English one breaks a covenant, one despises the cities, one has no regard for a man. And, and you read it and it says he, and it's capital H through there, like it's God, like God breaks a covenant. I thought, wait a second, I don't think God ever does that. When he disciplines Israel for their breach of covenant, he's keeping covenant, he's doing what he said he would do. So I don't, I don't think this refers to God. I think this is what's going on in the street. There's nobody on the roads, everything's closed down, then the people are wanton. So my paraphrase here to understand what I think Isaiah is saying, is he's saying they break the covenants, they're despising the cities, everything's in a, a shambles, and people don't have any regard for one another. There's no concern for the, the person, and people don't care about one another. It's just, it's just desolate. Now, um, one has no regard for a man is what's wrong with most of our uh, troubles today, is it not? What I mean is we have a real tendency to try to do the collective idea of we're going to disregard God's design of individuals serving him and try to figure out what would be the best good for the most people. And you do have to crack some eggs to make an omelet. We're going to have to sacrifice the rights of a few million communist Chinese people victims in order to bring about the great leap forward i mean we're just going to have to kill a few million but we got a lot of people and so the idea of the collective action versus the individual person with personal individual rights because made in god's image is the i think the great philosophical uh, dis- disagreement in our time And it's amazing that uh, we can't quite understand that. But if you don't believe in God and that he made you and he made you with a purpose, then it's easy to let go of the dignity of man. As one uh, philosopher uh, working for the World Economic Forum recently said, um, I believe in a 2014 TED Talk, Noah Yuval Harari said that uh, human rights are a fiction. That we homo sapiens with our vast capacity to make up fictions like love and marriage and God and heaven and the future and these things—these are all fictions that we tell ourselves because they're not material, physical reality. He's a radical materialist. He said that um, human rights are a fiction. It's just a story we tell ourselves, and we all agree to, to live in that story. But God said no. The God who with, with whom He's going to have to deal, um, and on the path He's on, it's it's not it's going to be verse twelve stuff. Um, um, the God who he has to deal with has said we actually have individual value. This is one of those verses that points out um, what's wrong with the human race, that we don't regard the, the dignity of the image of God in the other person. It mourns. it is dried up what has the land. It is shamed Lebanon. It molders. And that is the structure of verse 9, which is also challenging. Sharon is like a desert plain, shaking off, or Bashan and Carmel like shaking off the leaves. All the trees are scrubby and uh, and dead. And so this is a description of some of the most wonderful, lush, beautiful, various uh, rich places that are all in shambles. So he's describing the land again, that there is desolation because of God's wrath. And now we turn the corner as we close to God's decision and action, which is also, it turns out, wrath. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I'll be exalted, now I'll be lifted up. You've conceived chaff, you've begotten stubble. By the way, these are the two words. Conceiving is not the same as, as bearing a child, and bearing a child is not the same as conception. It turns out that they knew the difference, you know, back then. Uh, And we know the difference today, but these are the two words for harah, to conceive, uh, yalad, to beget. Men can do this. Women can do this. Does not mean to physically deliver an infant, but that's how we end up having children as the woman does that. So um, people get confused about this, but the word yalad, to beget. You've begotten stubble. My breath like a fire will consume you. So your kids, Everything you're producing, the result, whether it's the fruit of your actual, your begetting and you know, conceiving, begetting children, what you're just, uh, is he saying that their kids are kindling? I mean, that seems to be what he's saying. Now, this language of conceiving and begetting with something le- other than humans is, is, a, is often language for, um, for God's judgment. But notice that you're making kindling and I'm going to burn it is what he's saying. My breath, like a fire, will consume you. And they will be the people's burned to lime, like thorns that have been cut, and fire, they'll be burned. And that is Isaiah chapter 33, verses 1 through 12. And the point I wanted to close with tonight that you've waited so patiently for is that, first of all, God is going to get glory out of everybody. Everyone will bring glory to God one way or the other. I believe that. I think that's what we just saw. You're either in the wrath or you're in the blessing. You're in the wrath, you're in the blessing, you're in the wrath, or in the blessing. Everyone's gonna bring glory to God one way or the other. And walking with God brings glory to him as he works through us. And that is the way you wanna go. That's participatory. Walking with God brings glory to him as he works through us, as we saw in verses two and then like, um, let's see, five and six and then... Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the seven through nine, the ones that were talking about the, the salvation that the remnant can expect. But third, our entire reason for being is this positive cooperative glory. I'm calling it cooperative glory because the alternative isn't cooperation. It's somebody that's going to glorify God kicking and screaming. The person that says, I'm going to have to, I know one person says, I'm going to stand when I see my creator and I'm going to have to give him, he's going to have to render an account for why my life went like it has. Well, you could read the book of Job and there's a better answer than I'm going to, I'm, you know, you can ask him. I don't know if you want to hear the conversation, how it's going to go. But, but see, that's still going to glorify God and how he deals with that. If you fight him, he's still going to glorify himself and his judgment of you. And don't do that. Rather, recognize why he made you. He made you to be his image bearer. That's to bring glory to him. That's to imitate your heavenly father. And to do so is cooperative glory, where God sees you as his child in good fellowship, who's walking with him, and he can pour and bless and train and put you through your paces. And as you trust him, he can bless you some more. Cooperative glory. Fourth, sin and folly which really they're almost synonymous really sin and folly do not glorify god directly you don't glorify god by being a fool but god's dealing with the fool will bring glory to him his dealing with him according to his character does glorify him and see that's that's why he says i now i'm going to be exalted now i'm going to be uplifted because i'm going to bring the wrath because the fire is going to burn and it will glorify God to do that. And I know we're uh, in our arrogance. We don't, we're not comfortable with that thought sometimes, but it's, it should be a comforting thought. The righteous judge will do his work. Fifth, when God responds to wickedness and judgment, he is glorified and exalted. Do you believe that? It makes us hurt for those that we know will glorify God through wrath. It makes us hurt to think of them. This is our motivation for the gospel. But as much as we love our loved ones, as much as Paul loved Israel and said he would be a curse for their sake if he could, he loved Jesus more. He loved God more. That he loved his own countrymen. That he loved the unbelievers that were, uh, no matter what he said, were going to go to the lake of fire. No matter what he said, they were, as Paul said, they considered themselves unworthy of eternal life. And their doom has come on them to the uttermost, he says in First Thessalonians. And as much as he loved them, he loved God more. And and um, this is horrible to contemplate—loved ones that we know that will glorify God in His wrath, as His wrath is righteously executed. But um, actually, it's a comfort in this sense that God is righteous, good, and holy in everything He does. Is perfectly consistent between his righteousness his love and his other attributes what we saw tonight in verses 1 through 12 was the structure wrath and blessing wrath and blessing and the challenge of Isaiah first of all is figure out the structure but then you kind of have a choice to make do you find yourself ignoring Isaiah and you're part of the wrath crowd because that's what almost everybody in Isaiah's generation got they're gonna experience or or are you with them? Are we, you Wednesday night crowd, you're with them. And, uh, and it's real clear when you uh, put it in color like that. I'm so grateful that, um, that God embedded this uh, in the way Isaiah wrote this. And um, he has these little puzzles he wants us to go dig out. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we thank you, Father, for the time tonight, for the privilege we had to think through some of these thoughts of Isaiah about, uh, that you had inspired in him about your coming wrath which goes to eternity because of your righteous wrath on sin. Thank you that Jesus is our Savior, our only hope, and the only way to avoid that righteous wrath, which does bring glory to you as the righteous judge forever and ever. Father, let us glorify you in cooperation as we make choices to be pleasing to you and not as a proverb being set up for others to see how we shouldn't conduct ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.